I've always been told that whenever you get a chance to go to Israel, it like takes your Bible reading from like black and white to full color. And uh, man, I really found that to be true. Like there was like, even like while I was over there in the, in the early morning, I was sipping my coffee, I was kind of doing my Bible reading. And uh, you know, I like read about, you know, Jesus in Capernaum and I was like, oh, I was there yesterday. You know, it's just this, this, this like, it just kind of brings this uh, to full display. So I want to encourage you, man, if you've never got the opportunity uh, to, to go to the Holy Land, I want to encourage you if you get the opportunity to go. And I've had a number of you ask if I would ever consider taking groups from the church over. And yes, I would. That's like part of why I was kind of over there, just to kind of scope it out. And so we're uh, looking into that, kind of planning that uh, in the future. And so, you know, if you get that opportunity, we, uh, you know, release that to you. A- anybody want to go to the Holy Land? I'm just kind of curious. So, so. All right, we'll all go. We'll all go. All right, so uh, really uh, good to be uh, back with you guys. Hey, I want to, uh, one quick thing before we jump in is uh, the weekend. Uh, so Easter's two weeks from today. And then uh, three weeks from today, we start a new series the weekend after Easter. And uh, my wife is going to join me on stage uh, for that message. And uh, yeah, she's got a big following around here. And uh, you know, I just want you to know, like if you're relatively new to our church, like she doesn't do that very often. In fact, like the last time she did that, uh, she was pregnant with our youngest. And our youngest is 11, all right? So it doesn't happen very often. She's got so much wisdom and discernment. And so I can't wait for that day uh, to be able to have my bride up here. So you don't wanna miss that day. She's gonna drop some truth. And so it's gonna be really, really good. All right, if you got a Bible, go ahead and find Philippians 4. Philippians 4 is where we're gonna be today. And uh, man, if you are just now joining us, we are in week nine of a 10-week series um, on the book of Philippians, which really isn't um, a a book. It started off as a letter. And it's really important that we read it that way so that we interpret it correctly. So this guy named Paul is uh, being held against his will. He's imprisoned, quite possibly house arrest. He's chained to a prison guard, uh, getting ready to get shipped off uh, and put to imminent death. And he writes this letter to a group of people that he had done life with and that he loved very, very deeply. And that comes through in the letter. Now, uh, you know, letters are kind of a lost art nowadays. I'm gonna show my age a little bit. Like I can remember a time, it doesn't seem that long ago, where when you wanted to communicate with somebody with words, you wrote a letter. Like I'm not talking like text messaging or even email uh, or, you know, uh, DMs or emojis or anything like that. Like if you wanted to write, like when Lindsay and I first started dating, email, email was just beginning to come. Like we, we had signed up for like, you know, the account, but we really didn't use it yet. And there was no such thing as text messaging. There was no social media. And kids, it was glorious, right? Just the world without social media was amazing. And so, um, and so uh, my wife and I were dating and uh, we've been dating a couple of months and then I moved to the West Coast for about three months to do an internship. And so uh, there were two ways that we communicated that summer. The first, like I didn't have a cell phone. So the first was I had to go buy a, a calling card. You, you remember those? Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Like, and you need to Google it. Like, so I would buy a calling card and then I have to find a payphone at a McDonald's, or a payphone, Google it. And so you'd have to find a payphone and, and like I would, you know, call, it was really expensive so I didn't do that very often. The other way was we'd write letters. I actually kind of missed that. You know, it like took some time. We're talking like pen to paper, you know, full sentences with punctuation, no emojis, 
Like, I can't even imagine trying to communicate, you know, without emojis. And so we would write these letters back and forth and send it in the mail. And there's kind of like a lost art to that. And I just want you to know, like, this is what Paul is doing. Like, this is not like a quick thing. This is not like Paul firing off some kind of text message or DM. This is Paul sitting down and he's putting some thoughts together and he's writing with great intentionality and purpose. And Paul is unsure if he'll ever uh, spend any time with this group of people that he loves let alone ever see them again. Like he is facing these trials and these unknown circumstances in his life. And so what he does is he writes and he writes this letter to encourage them and to remind them of what they knew to be true, but maybe they drifted from. He writes a letter to challenge them, to motivate them and to inspire them. And see, when you write a letter, you take your time, you choose your words and the structure of your sentences and what you're trying to convey to other people. And Paul's primary theme throughout Philippians, as we have said, is joy. And it's a rebel's guide to it, primarily because joy, both in that culture and in our culture today, is the exception, not the norm. You know, for most of us, like our natural, let me just speak for me, and maybe you can identify with me. My natural reflex to life isn't joy. Like my natural reflex to the news and to unfortunate circumstances and, uh, you know, to, to certain emails, you know, it's like my natural reflex, you know, isn't joy. My natural reflex is to complain. I don't even have to think about that. It just kind of naturally boils out of me. My natural reflex is to worry. I need no training in that. That just comes natural. My natural reflex is to compare. My natural reflex is to get angry. Now, I need to be trained in joy. I need to make a an intentional decision to be joyful. And one of the greatest evidences that the Spirit of God is at work in your life is when you can experience and demonstrate joy even when, especially when, life seems to be falling apart, which Paul's was in a very real way. That's why there's so much weight and credibility to the words that he writes, because he does not write this from a resort on a beach in Tahiti. He writes this from a prison cell, and he's about to be put to death. And if Paul could demonstrate joy in the face of those circumstances, then there isn't any circumstance in which you and I cannot. In fact, I would even say this. Paul writes to make us bulletproof to the circumstances of life. And the only thing, the only person that can rob you of joy, it's not your circumstances, it's not your boss, and it's not your ex. The only person that can rob you of joy is you simply by not choosing it, simply by not choosing to step into it. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not talking about like a Pollyanna, look it through rose-colored lenses, pie in the sky, in the words of that great theologically accurate worship song from the Lego movie, everything is awesome. Like, that's not what I'm talking about here. Like, this isn't some, like, pie in the sky. Well, you know, the Lord is just good, brother. Like, like and you're totally denying the pain. Listen, you can grieve and still hold on to joy. You can be upset and still be joyful. You can still walk through pain and circumstances and be real about that. And yet, at the end of the day, say, but, but I'm going to hold on to joy. Now, if uh, we, are, we are two weeks away from wrapping this study up. Philippians is four chapters long. It's one of Paul's shortest letters. And if Philippians was a mountain range, 
then chapter three, what we've just walked through over the past couple of weeks, would be the peak of that mountain range. Man, in chapter three, like Paul writes some of the most beautifully descriptive paragraphs that he ever writes. Like, I mean, it rivals some of the things that he wrote in Romans. In fact, one of my favorite verses in chapter three is verses 12 through 14. This is like Paul's locker room talk before the team takes the field to win the championship. And he says this, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And we're all just like, let's go, yeah, let's go. Uh, or at least some of you. So here's the thing, if I'm Paul, and I got that in me, like if I'm editing the letter, I'm saving that for the last thing I say. Like that's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write that and then I'm gonna go Paul out. <laughs> I bring that up to say this, Paul's got more to say. Like he's still got one whole chapter's worth to say. Chapter, what in the world could he possibly say after that? Well, the very first word in chapter four, verse one, look at your Bibles with me, uh, indicates what it is that he's got to say. He says, therefore. Now, therefore is a transition word, therefore is an application word. When you see therefore in the Bible, what, what that means, he just got done describing something absolutely beautiful. When he says, therefore, this is him saying, now I want you to apply what I just said to your life and let me tell you how to do it. And so he says this in verse one, follow along with me. He goes, hey, therefore, my brothers and sisters, that is a term of endearment, that's family. Uh, you whom I love and long for. Like Paul loves these people dearly. He had led probably many of them to Christ. He had discipled them. He loves them so much and he longs for them. He misses them. He knows that he will likely never see them again and he, he longs for them. He says, my joy and my crown. He says, hey guys, like you, when I think about you, you've made my life more joyful. And then he uses this word crown. Like what is, what is that about? Well, he's talking about eternity. Now, I wanna be very clear. We are saved not on our merits, but on the merit of Jesus Christ. You are saved by grace through faith through the finished work of Jesus. That's what gives you access to God and heaven. But the Bible talked one thing. So, so I thought that was pretty good. Thank you. All right. So, so the Bible talks about a, a system of rewards. So this is this idea of like when we get, get to heaven, some of our mansions might be bigger than others. Some of our crowns might be bigger than others. This is this idea, not your salvation. This is this idea. Paul says, hey guys, like your fruit and faithfulness is gonna be part of my crown. He's looking beyond this into eternity. And he goes, I want you to stand firm, man, because we have to in this culture in which we live. How do we stand firm? In the Lord. And then he goes in this way, and then he says, dear friends. I love how that he attaches that on there because he knows that he's getting ready to address something. He's going, getting ready to confront them. And I have some of my most passionate disagreements with some of my closest friends because the relationship can handle it. I know they love me. Uh, they know that I love them. And so we can speak very frankly with each other. And Paul's getting ready to do that. Now, before I read verses two and three, I just wanna remind you all throughout our study is that Paul periodically keeps dropping in this urge for them to stay unified. 
But, yeah, but he doesn't really tell us why. He doesn't really mention what's going on. We're going to find out why he keeps urging them and us towards unity in verses 2 and 3. Check it out. He says, I, circle this word, I plead. He's like, I'm pleading with you guys. Like, I can't control you guys, but I'm pleading with, with and then he mentions two names, Eodia, and I plead with Syntec. Now, I know some of you are like super impressed that I know how to pronounce those. Some of you are like, man, is that what you learned like in Bible college? Like, that's impressive. Let me just give you a little bit of clue to Bible study. When you're reading the Bible out loud with other people and you come across a word and you're unsure about it, you just say it fast and confident, right? Just super fast, super confident, all right? It'll make you look like you know what you're doing. All right, Eodia and Syntec, all right, I'm joking. All right, so, so save the email. So, to, be, to be of the same mind, this is unity, not uniformity. And how do we know that? Because of what, how he finishes it, in the Lord. And then he goes, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women. So Eodia and Syntec were women. Uh, they have contended at my side. They were partners with, with Paul when he was there uh, in the cause of the gospel. And so these were prominent leaders within the church in Philippi. And then he goes, along with Clement, uh, we have no idea who that person is. This is the only time that individual is mentioned in the entire New Testament. For whatever reason, Paul seems necessary to specifically address them. And the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. Verses two and three are what I might affectionately uh, call flyover verses. These are the verses when you read and you kind of get to it and you're like, I have no idea what's going on here. Like, I'm just gonna go out on a limb here and say Philippians chapter four, verses two and three is nobody's life verse, <laughs> right? You're not getting these verses tatted on your arm, at least intentionally, right? <laughs> and so you're like, you, you come, this is where you just kind of come across this in Philippians, you just kind of like, I, I don't know like what to do with this. Like, you know, like what, what, you know, I'm not gonna do my devotions in that. I mean, this just seems like one of those like kind of strange things. What in the world does Paul mean here? Well, let me just make a couple of observations and then I'm gonna make an application before I move on to verse four. Here's some observations. Now we know why. Paul keeps bringing up the issue of unity. There was something very specific happening in this church between two very influential, prominent leaders within this church. They had a disagreement. We, we don't know what that disagreement was, but we do know that oftentimes Paul's letters to the churches throughout the New Testament were responses to letters he had received. So quite possibly, the, there was a group of Christians in the church in Philippi, they had written Paul a letter and they told him what was going on. And so Paul is now uh, finally, it, he saves it for the very last chapter. He's finally addressing it. It was, sig here, we don't know what they were arguing about, but here's what we can surmise. It was significant enough that they couldn't resolve it themselves. Paul needed to say something. Um, but it wasn't serious enough that Paul wasn't confident that they couldn't resolve it themselves. He's like, you guys are fully able to bring resolution to this matter. It was divisive enough that the church mentioned it in their letter to Paul. It was not dire enough that it had bubbled up to a doctrinal issue because Paul always addressed those very, very specifically. The fact that it shows up where it shows up is Paul saying, hey, you guys need to deal with this because interpersonal conflict will rob you of joy, it'll rob you of peace, and it will splinter the church of whose mission is so absolutely critical. Those are the observations. Now you may go like, okay, what in the world does this have to do with me and my life today? Well, as it turns out, like everything, 
Anybody got any relationships right now that need to be reconciled? Anybody right now at odds with somebody? Anybody right now, like, like you, they offended you, maybe even years ago, you, they don't even know that they offended you, and you've been holding on to that offense, and when you hold on to an offense, it's like holding on to hot coals. Nobody else knows you got hot coals in your hands, and the only person that's being wounded is you. And you gotta learn to let that go. Now listen, I'm not saying, now maybe that other person that offended you is no longer in your life. Maybe they're not even alive anymore. This isn't about their response. This isn't about them feeling sorry. This isn't about who's right and who's wrong. This is about recognizing that the longer you hold on to an offense, you become bitter. The longer you are bitter, then this ends up leading to contempt. Contempt of relationship only hardens your heart and hurts you. So here's just a very simple application. Is there anybody you need to be reconciled with today? And I don't know the details around that. I don't know who needs to hear this. Chances are uh, there's a lot of broken, hurting relationships right now. And it's because we're holding on to things that we need to let go of. That's the application. Well, as we go on to verses four through nine, um, if you've been in our church for the last two to three years, I have preached on the following verses that I'm getting ready to read multiple times over the last three years. God has just continued to lead us to this passage, and I think you're gonna see why here in just a minute. Um, but I've preached these verses multiple times. And I just wanna say that to you, because for those of you that have been in our church for a while, uh, if what I say in the next few moments sounds like you've heard it before, it is likely because you've heard it before. And as a preacher, I hate repeating myself, but one of the things that I'm learning after 25 years of, of preaching ministry is that a big, big part of my job is to repeat myself. Like I'm not up here like inventing new truths. I'm up here simply to remind you to apply the truths that you know. And so in the following verses, what I want you to see, especially if you're jotting down a few notes, is that Paul is gonna give us three imperatives followed by a promise. Now, here's what an imperative is. An imperative is stronger than a suggestion, less than a command. So it's stronger than a suggestion, less than a command. It is an imperative. And then after the imperatives, uh, he provides a promise. All right, you're gonna see what I mean here in just a minute. The first two imperatives are emphatic. So look with me at verse four. Paul writes this. He goes, hey, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he goes, hey, I'm gonna say it again. Rejoice. So rejoice isn't necessarily a word that, you know, you and I use a whole lot throughout our everyday lives. At least I'm guessing you probably don't. Uh, so what does rejoice mean? Well, here's the definition of rejoice. To feel or show great delight. So you may not use the word, but you do that every day. Like we feel or show great delight, you know, in the NCAA tournament, you know, until our team gets knocked out and our bracket gets busted. Um, those of you brand new grandparents, Man, you are, yeah, there you are, there you are. You, you, you are rejoicing in your grandkids. You are feeling and showing great delight in them. Last night, uh, my wife and I took our 16-year-old daughter to dinner and then to a comedy show, and we rejoiced in a chocolate mousse dessert. Like this thing was like amazing. We were feeling and showing great delight. That's the meaning of the word. Now notice, what word is in rejoice? Joy. So this is this idea, and here's what I wrote down in my notes. Like rejoicing is like joy on repeat. 
And Paul goes, hey, don't, don't rejoice. Like, what are we supposed to rejoice in? Well, he goes, not in your circumstances, but in who? In the Lord. Because my circumstances may not always be praiseworthy, but my God always is. And then he says, hey, when should you rejoice? And he goes, always. Like, just, just always. Just always be feeling or showing great delight. And then why would he repeat himself? Why say it again? Because he knows that the cynic within you and me doesn't want to do this. And so he, it's just a double click. He's double reminding us. You know, man, it is easy to rejoice when things are really, really going your way, your way or when things feel good. It is easy to rejoice in spring break, sunshine, and the beach. It is much harder to rejoice in clouds, rain, and snow in March. And I'm talking to you spring breakers that are joining us from someplace warm via live stream. We are here in Indiana trying not to resent you, and we are failing, all right? So, so this is just this idea. So, man, when things are going great, it's easy to feel or show great delight. When things aren't, man, that's much harder. Like, it's harder to show joy or great delight in cancer, divorce, and miscarriage. And you can't control those things when they come into your life. Here's what Paul is saying, though. You can control your response to it. Now, maybe not at first, and maybe not perfectly, but we can grow in this. And why is this an imperative? Because I think that if Paul just simply threw out these suggestions, there's no way we would do it. So that's imperative number one, is rejoice in the Lord always. Here's imperative number two, it's found in verse five. Let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. Now, we really don't have a, a great English word for the word that Paul uses in the original languages there. So uh, when they translate it into English, they just translated it gentleness, and I just don't think that captures it. I don't know about you, but like, I don't know. Like if somebody comes up to me and they're like, hey, I just wanted to pay you a compliment. I just think you're, you know, really gentle, bro. You know, it's like, thanks. You know, I, I've never had anybody come into my office like, hey, pastor, you know, would you pray that we would increase in gentleness? You know, it's not really something that we aspire to. And more accurately, the word that Paul uses here, most commentators agree, is, is better translated as this idea of selflessness. So this idea of like, a, like an open-handedness, like it's somebody that's not gonna clamor or fight for their rights. Uh, jot down 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse one. This was how Jesus is described in that verse. Jesus is described as being gentle in heart. He, he was the most selfless person to ever walk the face of the planet. This was what Paul was sort of embodying here as he writes this from prison. He's not saying, hey guys, you know, can you hire a lawyer and send them you know, to, to kind of represent me? He's not clamoring for his rights. He's living very, very open-handedly. Now, in a society that's always clamoring for rights, you get somebody who's able to do this, this stands out in the absolute best way. This is what he's talking about. Uh, while uh, we were in Israel, we uh, had a guide. Uh, he was an Israeli Christian named Shamir. I've actually brought a picture of uh, Shamir uh, one afternoon. This was actually, uh, we were visiting the desert where Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. We were standing up on the top of this hill. And Shamir was great, man. He was born in Jerusalem. He's a, he's a Christian. And he led us uh, through, the, through the whole trip. And at one particular point in time, as we're driving through Jerusalem, he points to this house, like kind of up on a hill, and he says, hey, you guys see that house? And we're like, yeah. And he goes, well, there's this dividing wall between Palestine and Israel. And he goes, that house behind the wall used to be my house. And he's like, I, I lost it. 
Like when they put up this dividing wall, like I lost that house. And I couldn't even get my head around that. Like I was like, I can't even imagine that happening here. Like you just imagine like going to work one day and then somebody just like puts up a wall and you can't get home. And they're like, well, you know, sorry, you just lost the property, you know, imminent domain. Like it's ours, like it's gone. I just can't even, like in America, like we would clamor for our rights. And I was like, well, Shamir, what did you do? And he's like, well, not a lot I can do. And then he, and then he said this, he goes, the Lord is good. I'm a citizen of heaven. It wasn't really my house to begin with. So this is the description. This is, this is what Paul means when he uses the word gentleness, totally countercultural. Here's the third imperative, and it's found in verse six, and we've got to read it this way. We often don't. He, we often read this as a suggestion. This is an imperative. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, now stay with me. I don't, want to, I don't want to lose you. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... Like by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So here's three imperatives. Uh, Show or feel great delight in the Lord. Uh, Be selfless in the way that you live. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything through prayer and petition, present your request to God. Now your initial reaction to that may be like, well, how could he be so insensitive? I can't help but be anxious. I wanna draw a distinction here between what we might call clinical anxiety and anxious feeling. There's overlap, they're not always the same. One might require some therapy and some short-term or long-term medication. Here's why, because uh, you've developed or carved neurological pathways in your brain that need to heal and need to be recarved. So that's this idea here. But then there's the everyday, uh, normal, just anxious feelings that we all have. And I, and I don't want you to misread what Paul says. Paul does not say never be anxious. He says don't be like there, there's a difference. So, so here's what this means, is that we're all gonna experience feelings of worry and anxiety because we live in an uncertain life and uncertain times. Paul says, yes, but whenever you begin to feel those feelings, you need to do something with them. You need to redirect them. You've heard me say this before. Worry takes place in your brain. Anxiety gets felt in your body. And so as you begin to feel this in your brain, you've got to make a decision as to what you're going to do with the worry and the anxious thoughts. When they come into your brain via the amygdala, totally okay, but then you need to start training. What what do I do with it next? Am I going to stay there? Am I going to dwell on it? Am I going to just uh, uh, ruminate on it? Or am I going to do something with it? Worry and anxiety is you talking to yourself about your problems. It's all the what ifs. It's rehearsing the worst case scenario in your mind. It's you spending enormous amounts of emotional energy on things that may never happen. It is a down payment on a problem that you may never have. Well, so why do we do it? Well, because it's a form of control. And this is how many of us relate to worry. You know, recently I was just kind of challenged on this where, you know, occasionally like I'll come home in the evening and, and Lindsay will kind of meet me at the door. She'll be like, hey, how, how was your day? And sometimes I'll be like, you know, it's kind of a bad day. And I begin to think about like, why do I say that? Like, why do I say it was a bad day? Did I really have a bad day or did I have a bad conversation that I thought about all day? Because there's a difference. Like maybe the conversation lasted five or 10 minutes, but then I just thought about it the rest of of the day. Did I have a rough encounter that lasted just a handful of minutes, but then I thought about it the rest of the day. So I really didn't have a bad day. I had a bad experience that I thought about the rest of the day. This is a mental habit. And this is the lie that we believe subconsciously. If I worry today, then I'll have peace 
tomorrow, but I won't. So Paul says, instead of worrying about it, he goes, um, present your requests to God. See, prayer is redirecting your worry towards a trustworthy God. And if you've got um, a list full of worries, then you will never run out of things to pray. See, we don't get to choose what we're going through. We do get to choose what we think about, and what we think about is God's invitation to give us this promise of peace. And what Paul talks about here is not transactional. It is all relational. He goes, well, well, what do we do? How do we experience peace? He just says, when you are concerned about something, uh, tell God what you need and thank him for all that he has done. I love what Teresa of Avila said. She said, you pay God a compliment by asking great things of him. So three imperatives followed by the promise. Here's the promise in verse seven. And the peace of God, the peace that comes from God, not your circumstances and not your understanding of your circumstances, which transcends all understanding, which means you can't explain it. You can't say, you know what, well, here's why I'm at peace. No, this peace has actually come to me from God because I've trusted him with my issues, and that will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, I am coming to God, and I am asking for his supernatural power to give me peace that transcends anything that I can explain or understand. And then he finishes with this great descriptive paragraph in verse eight. He goes, finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Why? Because you're carving new neurological pathways. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. That's application. And then he says that this is a promise. And the God of peace will be with you. He doesn't necessarily say God will deliver you. He doesn't say God will remove that painful person from your life. He doesn't say that God will, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, beam you out of the issue. He goes, God will be with you in the midst of your struggle and your pain. And he's urging us. He goes, man, you cling to these things. Because there's very little in life right now that is true and noble and admirable and praiseworthy. You've got to find it and you've got to fight for your life to hold on to it. In 1990, uh, British Airways Flight 5390 the glass blew out of the cockpit and it sucked the pilot out of the window. And this was pre 9-11, so this was the day whenever the uh, cockpit was kind of open to the rest of the plane. And a flight attendant by the name of Nigel Oden was walking into the cockpit as the pilot was being sucked out of the plane and they caught this picture where he is holding onto the pilot's ankles at 30,000 feet. And so as I read what Paul just writes when he says, finally brothers, Whatever is true, noble. That's this is what I'm thinking, is I'm throwing myself spread eagle style towards what is true, noble, right, admirable, and praiseworthy, and I'm holding on for dear life. That I'm clinging to these things that I know to be true, even though I don't necessarily feel them for them to be true. And this is so practical here. This is not Paul saying something that is in defiant of good therapeutic practices and science. This is Paul saying something that backs it up. He is saying, we're talking about mental training, and the technical word for that is just re healing and recarving the neurological pathways. So here's what this is. He goes, hey, when you experience anxiety and anxious feelings, that's totally normal. That's human. 
Don't stay there. Like, like clean it up, redirect it, uh, come before God and say, God, this is me, this is what I'm struggling with. God, I just wanna give it to you. And then you, you train in that moment and you, you, it's, gonna, it's not gonna happen overnight. It is a mental practice that requires exactly that, practice. Now hear me, for those of you that just feel so defeated right now because you've been facing anxiety for years and you just haven't been winning the battle. I know you can do this. And the reason why I say that so confidently is because if you have ever uh, house trained a puppy or you've ever potty trained a toddler, you can do this. Because what happens is, yeah, they have an accident, you clean it up, and then you train. When I have a mental accident in my head, when I dwell and ruminate on something that happened all day long, I clean it up and then I retrain and I begin to, I I take that concern and I redirect it in prayer and petition towards God. Here's the other thing that I wanna mention. I've used this uh, example before, so for some of you, you're gonna go, I remember this, and for some of you, you've never seen this before, um, is that I've always been told that our nervous systems are like containers and they can only handle so much. This is part of the reason why mental health and anxiety issues are so high nowadays because our nervous system containers are chock full and they can't handle anything else. And so this is like, you know, why we need to pay attention to what we expose ourselves to and think about because uh, right now more than ever, the world seems out of our control. It isn't any more out of our control than it's ever been. We're just reminded of it all the time. And your nervous system can't handle it. And so here's what happens. I think we need to be very, very clear. I wanna encourage you to go home, maybe later today, pull out a piece of paper and just write down two categories to say, what are the things that I can do and what are the things that God can do? Now, I just want you to know that the things that you can do are gonna be uh, much, much less than the things that God can do. But this, is, this leads to healthy um, like emotional health and spiritual health. So, so let me just kind of give you a bit of an example. Um, for many of us, Uh, A big worry and concern, a source of our anxiety is finances. And there's so many things that are outside of our control. So you and I, we cannot control the stock market. We cannot control the price of gas. We cannot control these ripple effects in the economy. Like we just can't control it. Doesn't do you any good to worry about it. Like doesn't do you any good to just get all tense and anxious over it. So you gotta stop and go, well, you know, what can I do? Well, I can employ good stewardship practices into my life. You know, I can develop a budget. You know, I can, I can uh, give 10 and save 10 and live on 80. You know, this is what God told me to do so that I can have peace and fruitfulness in my life. That's what I can do. So I'm gonna keep that in my can. You know, others of us were like, you know what, right now I'm just in a dead-end job and I don't really like what I'm doing and I don't think that, you know, this is what I wanna do for the rest of my life. And well, you know what, a lot of times, you know, there's not a lot that we can do in that category. You know, you can't control your boss's, you know, emotions and how they react to you and all that. But, you know, I can, you know, I can develop a good resume and I can get some good experience and I can actually show up and actually do what I say I'm gonna do. Like, those are the things that I can do. I've talked to a lot of young men. They're like, man, I really, really wanna meet the great girl. She needs to be beautiful and she needs to be funny and she needs to be athletic and she needs to be charming. And, and I'm like, who are you looking for, a unicorn? And uh, you know, I'm, like, I'm like, you know, what are you doing to prepare to meet her? Well, I don't know, I'm playing Call of Duty a lot. And uh, I'm like, well, hey man, like, you know, you can't really control that. Like, how about we start here? Let dude take a shower, bro. Like, <laughs> Like, that's something you can do. Like, that, that's, that, you know, let's get that down first, all right? So I think you get the idea. These are the things that I can do. Now, 
Here's where anxiety boils over when we, t- we try to own things that we cannot control. So I-, I just want you to know, like right now, like, you know, yes, work hard. Scripture says that a wise man will leave an inheritance for his children's children. Man, you work hard. Listen to me. Provision is God's deal. It's not yours. So when you try to take provision and you try to put that into like your bucket and you try to overown it, it like overflows. And the result of that is anxiety. When, when it comes to, uh, you know, healing, maybe there's some sort of a ailment or issue going on with your body. I prayed with multiple people first service that are just dealing with, with cancer, you know, miscarriage, diabetes. You know, I was like, you can't, you can't, there's so many things that are outside of your control. You're not, you're not telling your heart to beat right now. It's just doing it. There's so many things that are outside of your control. So, so healing, man, that's God's deal. And when you try to overown that, it, you just kind of put it in your bucket, it overflows, and the result is anxiety. Man, when it comes to the protection of your family, listen, I've got a teenage girl that's driving right now. I totally get this, right? I'm constantly creeping on her through the Life360 app. <laughs> and uh, it's just increased my prayer life. Here's the deal, man, I, I, can't, I can't protect her. Protection is God's deal. And so I try to take protection, try to be an overbearing parent. I put this in the category, it overflows and the result is anxiety. So much of this is saying, God, here's what you can do. Here's what I can do. I release it to you in prayer and petition. And now I'm gonna go sleep. And I'm gonna trust that you're the God of the universe. Now here's the here's the challenge that I think we have to face for those of us within the church. And I've grown up in the church and I've I've got a lot of it, this is just experience and observation. When it comes to relationships that are falling apart, when it comes to interpersonal conflict and uh, divorce and estrangement, there's so much that is outside of our control. I mean, we are sinful, broken people and we can't fix it. When it comes to something like anxiety, there's two great errors those of us in the church can make. We can over-spiritualize it and say really harmful things like, well, you, need, you clearly have some unrepentant sin in your life, and if you just repent of your sin, God would take away your anxiety. Or we say things like, if you just have more faith, or have you prayed about it? And for some of you, you grew up in a really legalistic church background, and people didn't know what to do with your anxiety, and they said these things that just harmed you but we can then have an overreaction to that and we can under-spiritualize it. And we can say things like, well, I've tried prayer, it didn't work, so I'm gonna go try this medication. I, I would say that the God of the medication is the God of all of it. And so I would simply say, simply say to you, I don't know where you fall on this, whether you under-spiritualize it or over-spiritualize it, but the answer is when we come to God and we say, God, uh, I'm gonna actually utilize the tools that you've given me to bring some healing in my life, but I am not going to underestimate your power to bring peace and healing. And so I don't understand it, and that's exactly why Paul says it transcends all understanding. But it could quite possibly be God wants you to employ the imperatives, feel or show great delight. Be selfless, which shows your identity in Christ. Don't be anxious about anything, but through prayer and petition, present it to God. And then the God of peace will come. And could it quite possibly be you've want the promises without the imperatives? 
And so I know for some of us, it doesn't make any sense. We're like, well, I, need, I need some like big thing. I need some big like breakthrough in order to be released from this. Do you? Because I think, I think God actually wants you to demonstrate a childlike faith so that he can demonstrate his power. A great biblical example of this is Naaman in the Old Testament. Naaman was this captain of the Assyrian army, this incredibly powerful dude in the known world at the time. And he captured all these kingdoms of the earth and Naaman comes down with leprosy. And that was a death sentence in those days. And he hears that there is a guy by the name of Elisha, not Elijah, but Elisha, who is now a slave. He, is, he was a part of one of the kingdoms that Naaman had conquered. And he hears that Elisha's God could quite possibly heal him from leprosy. And he's just desperate enough to actually check it out. So he brings in Elisha and he's like, you know, could your God heal me of leprosy? And Elisha's like, yeah, he could. He's like, well, what do I have to do? And I think Naaman is thinking of some great feat or some great thing that he has to do to try to earn this as a reward. And, and here's what Elisha says to him. It's absolutely brilliant. He goes, I want you to go down to the Jordan River, this muddy creek. And I was actually at the Jordan River last week. I snapped this picture of it. It's, it's muddy. It's like, it's not that impressive. Elisha goes to Naaman. Hey, I want you to get down to this mud creek and I want you to get in. And I want you to dip, like not once, not twice, not three times, but seven times. And six times you're gonna dip and you're gonna still have leprosy. On the seventh time, you're gonna come up and you're gonna be cleansed. And Naaman got offended. And he's like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. There's gotta be something more to it than that. And he leaves. And Elisha stands his ground. And eventually Naaman comes back and he does just this. He dips in this muddy Jordan River seven times and on the seventh time he is cleansed. Now, why did God do it that way? To demonstrate his power when it doesn't make sense. And I just simply wanna say to you today, maybe what you need is a dip in the Jordan River, figuratively speaking, to invite the power and the presence of God into your life when it doesn't make any sense and just petition God in prayer. I love what Ian Bounds says about this. He says, God is waiting to be put to the test by his people in prayer. He delights in being put to the test on his promises. It is his highest pleasure to answer prayer, to prove the reliability of his promises. The question is, do you trust him with that? So here's how we're gonna end our time together today across all of our campuses, is that um, if you need um, reconciliation of a relationship or you need to be released from something, I simply wanna invite you to come and uh, figuratively speaking, like dip in the Jordan. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, I'm gonna be down front. Our prayer team is gonna be down front. Your campus pastor is gonna be down front. Here's what I wanna ask you to do. Uh, last hour, we had people lined up all the way to the back of the room. You just simply come up. It is a 20 second exchange. I need release from blank. And people get all kinds of things. I need to be released from anxiety. I need to be released from lust. I need to be released from worry. That's all that they said. And then we pray, or, or this, I need to be reconciled too. And I have people come up to you, I need to be reconciled to Liz. I need to be reconciled to Mike. I need to be reconciled to Sally. It, it, that was all they said. And we just laid hands on them and prayed that God would bring release and God would bring reconciliation. This is an opportunity for you to invite the power and the presence of God into your life when you've thrown everything else at it that you can think. And watch what God might do to people who believe his promises.
Lord God, we come to you right now. And I know that represented across this room and others, that there's a tremendous amount of pain. Pain over anxiety, pain over health, pain over worries and concerns, relationships that are broken and feel irreconcilable and estranged. And so God, we come to you today and we just wanna acknowledge that you are the God who can bring release from and reconciliation to. And so simply in faith, I pray that you would honor those who would step out today and lean into the God who can bring healing and restoration. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.